Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present L'Chaim, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub, and there are many world-class musicians who move our hearts and our souls. In the Jewish world, one of the most beloved and respected in this group of world-class musicians is an Israeli who's made fabulous music with his guitar for more than 40 years, creating the melody for the iconic Israeli song Yehyeh Tov, a song promising better times in the context of Anwar Sadat's coming to Jerusalem to help craft a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. But while most Jews associated him with Israeli songs and folk music, this is a true musician, a superb classical guitarist who is as equally comfortable composing and performing wild flamenco-type music that comes out of the creativity of Spain, where he spent many of his young formative years going to college in Madrid, he also grew up in England, and his music reflects the three cultures that make him who he is today, Israel, Spain, and England. Of course, many of you recognize I'm speaking about the brilliant David Broza, who released a marvelous new album recorded at the Casa Limon Studios in Madrid, and which is aptly entitled and Casa Limon, and is an absolute masterpiece, lauded by critics throughout the world, in which David does not sing a note. <laughs> and Casa Limon is his first all-instrumental guitar album, which establishes David Broza as one of the finest guitarists in the world. Here is a taste of David Broza on his new album, En Casa Limon. And if you know anything about David Broza, you know he is not simply a gifted songwriter, performer, and guitarist. David Broza is one of the leading activists on the Jewish scene, working to build bridges between the Israeli and Palestinian communities, especially through the world of music. And David, call a to you on En Casa Limon. I've had the chance to listen to the album. It's exciting, it's moving, it's simply gorgeous. By the way, 
two of my favorites are Autumn Longing and oh, Too really? Old to Die, which we just played. But Mazal Tov on the album, and it is wonderful to welcome you back to L'Chaim and JBS. Well, Mark, it's great, really a great pleasure. Although I, I got used to driving into your studio and sitting close to each other in the wonderful cozy room that you have there for so many years. So it has been a while since I visited you, and it's nice that you put the, you know, pulled up the phone and uh, invited me to visit again, uh, this time on Zoom. All the time, anytime. By the yeah. way, you should know, David is referring to the fact that on a number of occasions he came out to our studios when they were in Fort Lee, New Jersey. We right. have moved now, David. We are on 46th Street really? in Midtown Manhattan. So the next time you come to the studio, it'll be a lot easier for you. Sure. But it is always a joy to see you, whether it's in person or during coronavirus on Zoom. So thank you for joining us. The obvious first question, David, what prompted you to do an all-instrumental album in Casa Limon? I wasn't so prompted. Nothing prompted me. I was prodded. I was, uh, I was um, in, uh, somewhat seduced into that uh, project. Really? In a, it, yes. It wasn't, a, you know, over the years, many years, um, after I meet with uh, audiences after the show, I sign CDs. I like to, I like to, you know, have small talk with people, and not not once in our lives, but many, many times over the years, people have asked, "When are you going to put out an instrumental album featuring all these little doodles and things that you play in between songs during the show?" Yes, because I have a tendency, especially in the years before I, I, I felt comfortable to talk between songs and introduce songs, which now I do a lot more, you know. Uh, in a much more proliferate, I'm like, I'm more prolific about it. But I used to play while I'm thinking about the next song, preparing myself, buying time, and uh, people wanted that recorded. Anyhow, um, a good friend of mine who's the president of a, a, of a label called S-Curve Records, which is on BMG, one of the largest recording uh, companies, record companies in the world, still around, um, called and said that he's got basically my entire collection at, at home. And he's a big fan, and I know that because he's already he's um, uh, he's distributed two of my latest albums. One is the Towns Van Zandt uh, album I did, uh, which was a, a great you know uh, homage to the great Towns Van Zandt, and the other one was East Jerusalem West Jerusalem. These are different projects which I've I've, I've introduced on your on your Absolutely. program before. He said he's missing one album. I said, oh, let me see if I can get it for you. <laughs> he said, yeah. It's an instrumental album. I said, but I don't have instrumental pieces. He says, well, I have a budget, and so I'd like for you to, record, to consider that. And if you can do it as quick as possible, it'd be great because I have the budget. I said, it's, it's a different discipline. It's not something that I'm familiar with. I have, and, and I think he knew that from conversations before. I never regarded myself as a guitarist. I regard myself as a companist, and I serve the songs that I sing, that I write in my own unique way. I've never been featured on albums as a guitarist, really, for nobody. Nobody's asked me to accompany them. It's always been very personal, my own thing. So he said, try it. So for the next year, this is about three years ago, and as I'm always on the road, I'm always performing. I'm doing between 150 to 200 shows every year for the I'm past 40 years of my career. I'm used to it, and I, it's part of my inertia, my energy. And, 
you know, I, I kept I kept on writing and just before shows, landing in a hotel, giving myself an hour here, an hour there. And about eight months later, I called him up and I said, you know, uh, Steve, I have the I have enough songs to start recording an album. You, normally you would think 12 tracks would be the right number. I had eight and I was running for moving forward. And he said, bros, I'm really sorry. Uh, sorry to tell you, I, I don't have the budget anymore. <laughs> you weren't you didn't come up too fast. I said, OK, Steve, it's fine. You got me into this. So as I was and I had to keep these songs in my memory because I don't write music. I don't, I'm not educated. I'm self-taught. So I don't write music and I record everything. And I kept on losing the tracks I recorded. I have to remind myself all the time. And then about, I think two years later, before I forget the entire thing, my wife, one, one night, Neely, she says to me, listen, it's time you record this album. You keep on talking about it as if you're afraid to do it. And I, I, I admit, it was a bit of a threshold I had to pass, get over. And uh, that morning, the next morning, I called my one friend who I trust dearly, one of the world's finest recording uh, engineers and producers who specializes in flamenco and Spanish guitars. That's his specialty. His name is Javier Limon. And he's responsible for, for recording Paco de Lucia, the late Paco de Lucia, who to us guitarists and to many guitar aficionados, you know, we know that he was probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest guitarist, Spanish guitarist to, to have lived. He died, uh, unfortunately, at a young age, 66, uh, six or seven years ago. Um, anyway, a good friend, he's recorded an album with me before, uh, about 17 years ago, um, a Spanish album. And he hadn't heard from me in quite a few months, so I thought he probably won't have time for this. And I literally, I think it was 7 in the morning, New York time, I texted him on WhatsApp. A minute later, I get a, a fantastic response on WhatsApp. Look, I'm in Cuba. Give me a few minutes to think about what you just said. Not a minute passes by. Right? So I, I thought enough about it. You know, I haven't done a, an instrumental album since Paco de Lucia passed away. But yours would be a real challenge because it's very different guitar playing, very different sound. Let's talk about it. Let's meet. So we met. And he committed to do the album and invited me to Spain to the studio. And now you've got the album in your hands. And that was a magical process. Uh, it was not something I can say I'd ever experienced before to sit and record and practice on songs without uttering a, t a song, a word, yes. anything, a sound. I, I couldn't even breathe, when you, especially when you record. And also I had to, I had to perfect my, my, my technique and my style because as good as a player as I am for my own songs, when it comes to only performing instrumental, there's a different level of, of demand. Of, of You need to get to a certain level. And I have a musician who works with me in Israel in my band. His name is Eyal Heller, amazing, amazing guitarist. And he heard me practice before a show. And, uh, and he said, you know, the pieces that you wrote seem to be a little bit more demanding than what you normally play. You're going to have to work really hard. And he scared me. He really scared me. I, I went home thinking, who's going to, I don't have a teacher. Who can I turn to, to give me exercises, to coach me? And there was nobody. So I, I had to sit and literally practice eight hours a day for four months and then go into the studio. And, and now, you know, I have the album. It's, uh, it's I mean, I'm, I feel so blessed and fortunate to, to have really carried it out. And the record company is extremely excited about it. I haven't had so much excitement from an album many years. Well, that is a marvelous story. 
And it's a wonderful story. Incidentally, when you were told your music is different, what do you think he meant? Oh, it's very simple for me. Um, you know, you were mentioning where I had grown up. So I'm, I'm Israeli born. I lived until I was 12. I was in, in Tel Aviv. I was born in Haifa, but grew up in Tel Aviv. And between 12 and 18, I was in Spain. One year during those six years in Spain, I was sent to a boarding school in England. That since then has become, in my biography, and I can't change it, like lived in England. I was in a boarding school. I went through that experience. Um, so really, by being Israeli, uh, and that, that has nothing to do with where I live, by being an Israeli, you're exposed to so many cultures. Israeli is a melting pot. Israel is a melting pot. Like they say New York is. But, you know, it's more, more melting pot than New York or Queens or any of the areas nearby. Because we have about, a, you know, Jews from about 120 nations converging on Israel and creating the new identity of the Israeli. But they don't, you know, the French Jew, the German Jew, the Polish Jew, the, Jew, the, the Russian Jew, the Algerian Jew, the Moroccan Jew, they may be coming in Israeli, but they cannot shed their, their culture, the culture where they come from for hundreds of years in some cases thousands of years so the moroccan israeli at home he has the flavors of the food the music that they listen to the tradition the prayers and the way they pray and all of the above are moroccan or polish or russian or whatever and when you meet musicians who come from these different backgrounds you're inspired by them or you're affected by them and so the way i i i, I listen to music and the way i have always composed, has always been very eclectic. And that's what he meant, yours is different. Because when Paco de Lucia or any other musicians, Tomatito, other very world-renowned flamenco musicians and others that he recorded in the past, they are, you know, it's like saying a country musician, then he plays country music. And when they play rock and roll, it's rock and roll. Like America especially is very pigeonhole-oriented. And now it's getting becoming more open, thanks to the internet and all that. But so for him to, to say, you know, your music is different, it was really acknowledging the fact that I can, and you can see that in the album, I may have one song which is, has a tinge of flamenco in it, another classical, another will have like an Irish jig in it, another will have like almost a jazzy, you know, swing to it, and so on and so forth. That's, uh, you explained it very, very well. And it's, it's also very interesting to be reminded and you remind us well that normally american jews don't think of israel as a melting pot but really? your point is very well taken and you're also saying that musically you've been influenced in some way by yeah. this melting pot yes yeah of course it's it's beyond being influenced israeli music is a reflection of the society from where it comes. So, you know, our Israel, you know, if you go, we have a wonderful, wonderful music school for contemporary music uh, that I'm, I help, I'm, I'm proud to say I was a founder just in the beginning of the first steps of it, but then I, because of my travels, I couldn't dedicate myself to it. It's called Ramon School of Music. And they're associated very closely to Berkeley School of Music in Boston, one of the few schools that Berkeley has actually taken in as a partner. And 
the beauty in, in what you see in Ramon School of Music is that all these people from different backgrounds get cultivated and taught the disciplines of pop music, jazz music, compositions for film and everything. And they, then they go out and start doing their music. And that really creates the new Israeli sound. But the new Israeli sound hides in it a lot of things. I remember my first experience with American musicians here in the United States back in 1985 or six, my first times here in America and recording with American band members. And then when I would teach them a song I wrote, you know, after a couple of songs or three or four songs, there would be this thing. I could hear them talking around the coffee machine saying, so what do you think about that Broza part of the song? The Broza part was always the thing that in Israel we have, we have a, a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus. And then it's known to have a C part, which is called a bridge. But the bridge in, in, in Israeli music, you could have the song in minor key, then turn into major key, then go back to minor key. We have all kinds of turns and twists in the music which pertain to the freedom and the variety with which we grow up listening to all kinds of music. You know, um, it's true that there is, there are waves and today uh, Israeli popular music is a lot more inclined to be Middle Eastern music, Mediterranean music. We call it Mizrahi music, but it isn't really Mizrahi. It's just Israeli local mixed with Arab and all the influences. And so that's, that's a new, that's a new phase that has been very, very popular for the past at least 10 or 15 years. And that will lead to, the, to another phase at another point while Israel, you know, deepens its roots in, uh, in, the, in, in the land of Israel, you know, as right now it's still a very young country. We don't know how to identify what is Israeli and what is from the outside. But because everything that's born in Israel to me is Israeli and it has all the influences. It includes the food that we have, you know, that we, we can, we can, you know, we can claim that falafel is something that we brought, but it wasn't. It's Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern food falafel. However, some places in Israel give it a twist. So it can be a falafel with something else, with other herbs in it and flavors. And we, we can reinvent because we are eclectic. Same as the wines. The wines that Israel produces are superb, but they, they, some of them have new flavors. Even the Cabernet may taste a little different than the French or the Napa Valley Cabernet. You understand? So music which is, hasn't been discovered yet globally, the secret of the beauty of Israeli music, but I, I think it's on the brink, and it will, because there's many art, Israeli artists now overflowing and, and really traveling far and wide, and you find amazing Israeli musicians and the best jazz bands and the best pop bands uh, now being signed to major record deals in the United States and in Europe, so eventually they'll be discovered, and hopefully what we call is eclectically unique will become a common, you know, uh, a common music, something that people will relate to as, oh, that's the latest hit. They won't think of it as being Israeli. It's that would be wonderful. Music. That would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. You said something also that struck me. You and I have known each other quite a while. Mm -hmm. I've seen you perform over and over again. And yet you say that in some way, you were, it was emotionally difficult for you to do this album. It was almost like you were afraid to do this album. Mm -hmm. And your wife says to you, David, it's time. And you decide, yes, you're going to do it. Uh, that was sort of a courageous step on your part. Mm 
But I'm fascinated that someone, and our audience should not miss this point. David Broza is obviously not only a world-class musician, but a world-class performer. So that very often the audience assumes somebody who has gained as much of a reputation, has produced as much, has done as much, they're not afraid of anything. But you're just a human being, David, and you're a man. And you've got mm -hmm. your own, you know, your own hurdles to, to, to jump over. Mm -hmm. Speak for one more moment about the emotional journey that this album represents for you. It's very, first of all, it's a very fine question. It, it has a depth to it, which I am still addressing. Um, I have not performed the album yet. You know, I've done one or two pieces here and there, but I've not quite sat in front of an audience and tested my own performance skills when it comes to an instrumental performance. So that is yet to be tested. And that's because of the, co the Corona and the COVID uh, era that we're living through. Sure. It's an era already. But I'll tell you that just from the practice time that I've put in, sitting eight hours daily for four months, and since I've recorded the album, sitting daily between five and six hours, maintaining that level, which there's nothing I love better. Don't get me wrong. If there's one thing I love is holding this guitar and having it in my hand, I just, I really love it. It's, it's, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it, it is an extension. It is an extension. Yes. It's a you know? part of you, isn't it? It's a part of me. And it's been that way apparently for so many years. I know my sister who's one year younger than me always like, you know, every once in a while, but she will talk about how at the age of 12 and 14, I never, I never let the guitar out of my sight. I, I don't remember that, but it's probably because I haven't let it out of my sight ever. And um, it's, it, and, but it does take constant time. Guitar is a, is a, I mean, violin is complex. Cello is complex. Trumpet is complex. Everything is complex. But guitar, I think, is, is a uniquely difficult and unusual instrument. And to really master it, you, it's not enough to play 10,000 hours, as they always say. You know, how long does it take to get to the to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. No, 10,000 hours, they say. That's the, the norm. If you really want to master, it's way beyond it. Because if you stop playing for, say, three weeks or a month, you have to start again. Because the muscle, there might be memory in the muscle, but there's no strength. And you've got to build that strength. And you've got So for me, though, to sit all these hours without uttering a word, and normally I even muff up my guitar so I don't hear the strings so I just hear the click and I know that both hands are working and I have to have one hand very strong like steel my left hand and I hold the guitar you know it has to be like steel and the right hand has to be almost as light as a feather so it caresses it doesn't and yet with intensity and purpose these are these are things that you have to especially when you're doing an instrumental you're telling a story without words you have to maintain some kind of a tension there between yourself and the listener, just as the same intense intensity as when I'm telling you the story now, as I'm speaking out to you in the audience. I'm, I, my intent, intention is to keep you riveted and interested in my storytelling, right? Otherwise, I've, I've, I've missed the point, and otherwise I'm not going to be called for another show. So when I play these instrumentals, it has to be something that an audience will keep their mind 
curious and waiting with anxious to see how I how how it takes them. Where does it take them? Where does it hit them emotionally? So these are things I've adopted. And I've I've had to really um, adjust, and I'm still adjusting to that inner silence. I never knew it. I never knew what it meant to be an instrumentalist. And now I'm facing it and I'm learning it. And this was a major, for me, it was, a, yeah, it was big because, you know, it's a world that I don't know. It, I'm, I could say I'm a perfectionist, but I'm more of a perfectionist, not as in a technical way, but in an intentional way. Uh, and, and, I'm, and Steve Greenberg, who put me to the challenge, really caught me at the right time of my life. I'm 65 now. And to step another, take another step further into my career and rediscover myself and challenge myself yet to another form of performance. Wow, what a gift. He gave me a gift. Absolutely. And that's what I was looking for you to talk about. The fact mm -hmm. that you were willing and what... 64, 63, 65, mm. but you were willing basically to take a chance. And when mm. you talked about the extent to which there was, I don't know if the word fear is appropriate. You didn't use the word fear, no. but you did talk about, it, it suggested to me some anxiety mm -hmm. that this was a new world for you, that you were you were stepping into something that was new, mm -hmm. you were willing to become discomforted to enable yourself yeah. to grow. And your story, as it applies to the guitar and instrumental music, is a story which people all over who are watching you now, all over America and all over the world online, in their own lives, they have similar both opportunities and challenges. Absolutely. And so I was wondering, out of your experience, is there something you could say to us that would help us in similar situations, even though it doesn't involve the guitar itself? Sure. It's, uh, this is, for me, the guitar is basically my vocation and my way of life. Every, every person, you know, after several years, you know, when you get to be 40 and 50 and 60, you've already, you dressed up already in your customary way of life. And, with a, and, and there is the, the, you know, the 50-year-old challenge. Uh, so you buy the bike and you do across America with a bunch of guys or whatever, all kinds of visions and things. But, and I think beyond it, um, and, I, and I've done it several times in my life, when I moved uh, in 1984, right at the peak of the greatest hit of all times in Israel, when I when I was uh, doing the, the woman by my side, and I moved to the United States to test the waters here and see what it's like and see where the source of the music that so inspired me, the blues, the rock and roll, the jazz, you know, the folk, um, to see it from first, you know, from, from my own eyes and from my own ears. Um, I didn't ask any questions of whether it's the right move professionally or not. From, from a career-wise, on a, on a commercial level, it was a, a darn mistake because nobody was offering me, a, it gave me a, a salary to move to, to America and, and to, you know, to promote my, my career. And I had to reinvent myself. And it brought me to really 
um, stand to the challenge of how much do I really care about understanding the blues and understanding the folk and understanding the American way, which we so much read about, see, watching movies when you live outside of the United States, you grow up like me um, and you become so inspired by it that you want to see it. And it's not what you see in New York City or Chicago and L.A. You know, it's, it's going into the, the deep south. It's going to southern Indiana. It's going into Texas and not the major cities, outside of the major cities, and performing for people who, who don't speak Hebrew, don't have any affiliation with Judaism. They have no closeness, and they hear you sing the guttural sounds of Hebrew, as well as my American poets that I've always set to music, and you know, I've, I've bridged over all these styles. So I have done this before. I've moved to America then in, 19, um, in, in 1999, 2000, I moved to Spain to reconnect and to start singing in Spanish, which I'd never done before. While I'm back in Israel every month, you know, to maintain my relationship with the audience and keep myself uh, invigorated. Um, and, and now this challenge uh, to become an instrumentalist. So what I, all I can say is uh, when you have a dream, I'm not talking about uh, abandoning family and being irresponsible. I mean, to take a chance in something that is part of the passion that you dream about but afraid to do, mm -hmm. it's not to do it and to feel that you've missed out is much more painful than doing it and failing. Because by doing, you know that you've tried. I, I'm, this album, this Roman album might, might not reach any grand recognition. It's not the point. The point is that I am, I've recognized my own ability to get over the threshold and actually become a performer of instrumental pieces. This is my goal. And now I want to perform it for you because I do have this great experience of being in front of an audience and performing and sharing with an audience my excitement. Hopefully I can do the same with some instrumental pieces in the future. And I shall, and I will, and I know that I'll meet my audiences wherever they are because I do travel a lot as soon as the, the skies open and it's a lot and I, and, and the, 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 the present um, COVID allows us, you know, will die away. So all I'm saying is if you have a dream, go out and try to reach it and that try to make beautiful. it a real reality. Really. I'm not, I'm not just as a dreamer. I'm saying as, as somebody who's accomplishing it. David, were you afraid of failing? I'm all, <laughs> of course I'm afraid of failing. I always feel that I, I always feel that I, there's a chance that I'm, even when I perform a song that I've done a thousand times before, I always feel I might not do it justice. And I'm the only one who judges myself. I don't expect, you know, I, I, I do get criticism. It's hard for me to, to be, you know, to hear critique if it's, it's, if it's harsh. Of course. But I am the first one to admit if something is good or not. And a lot of the times when I think something is not good enough, it might even become a hit because I'm not the only judge. And there are others who will judge it and help it move to the next level. So I'm afraid of, I'm always afraid of failing. That's why I practice so hard. That's why I work so hard to reduce the chances of me failing. And my success is my ability to tell you, you know, I tried it, I did it, I got to the finish line, and I can show you what it's worth. Good for you. You can judge whether it's the same, whether you feel the same about what I'm doing. And, you know, uh, really, in music business, as an art, as probably every banker will say the same, everybody, every lawyer will say, 2% is the safe, the safe number to look at 
as far as guaranteed success. We guarantee that if you do 100 projects, two will succeed. And two, these two will probably cover up for all the 98 other projects that haven't. This is how the world lives. doesn't mean that the other 98 don't have a share of success, a level of success. But to be a maverick, to be a total, that's not every project that you do is going to touch that. And I've done many albums, and I've got 25 top hits in the Israeli radio, music-wise, which is a hell of a lot. Um, but still, m many albums of mine have been, you know, have not been played, especially on Israeli uh, radio. My American stuff, Spanish stuff is, they're not play the audience wants me in Hebrew, that's in Israel. Here in the United States, more and more radio stations will be playing my music, especially if there's no singing on it. There's a, a less, kind of less competition, but it's a, it's a much more obscure world. And in Spain, where there's great appreciation in Latin America, great appreciation of the Spanish guitar, you know, the music is being played. As a matter of fact, Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, they, this, this record is doing extremely well, way above any expectations, Japan. So I'm very, I'm thrilled. Well, Mazal Tov to you. You know, we have a number of your performances that we play periodically mm -hmm. on JBS. Uh -huh. Some of them we taped live, and you were kind enough also to let me play your concert at Masada. You know the one mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Yes, of course. A fabulous, fabulous. I get Thank chills you. just thinking about that concert. When you do a concert like Masada, are you nervous? Oh, it's beyond nervous. I'm out of my mind. Really? Yeah. Even though, even though, this is something you could do in your sleep, and yeah, the you or, and yeah. you know, the audience that comes to Masada to watch you perform and you perform with a group of, of other real outstanding musicians, mm -hmm. they love you. They come and they love you. In other words, it's not like you have to win them over. You're not a new kid on the block who has to convince people that you've got that something special. And David, I've been around artists my entire life, not because of any zchut on my part. It's not merit on my part. I've just been very lucky. But I understand that the true, the great artists, they have something that is almost divinely given to them. Now, mm. you have that. You know it. You're, you're in a setting in which you're surrounded by people both on stage and this mass audience up and down all over Masada that adore you. You're still nervous? Oh, beyond nervous. I'm every every bone in my body, in every vein, is pumping as much blood and oxygen through the okay, just to keep why? the body in motion. Explain to us why. Because it's a big challenge, you know. Um, imagine, imagine you. Okay, imagine the Jewish mother who has to cook now a festive Rosh Hashanah dinner or Passover dinner. Every year she does it. Her family can't wait to eat the goodies that she brings out of her kitchen. If she put a little bit too much salt into them, but without noticing, that killed the dinner. Even though they adore her, they might turn away from it. They will leave the plates full. 
It's the same with my music. If I do not perform, and especially every performance, by the way, I'm out of my mind. Masada is a big challenge for many reasons. One, it's outdoors, and sometimes the wind picks up at around 2 in the morning, and we start at 3, and by 3 o'clock, we already have pretty hard winds sometimes, which draw a lot of dust and make it very difficult to, to maintain the show, technically even, let alone you know, getting the audience in your, in, your, in your pocket. But the show starts at 3, and the sun night might not be in the middle of the sky until 7 o'clock. It's four hours straight of music, straight music. And it's just me playing. I've got my musicians, but I'm the key person. So I have to, in my mind, I have to program a show and live it. Before I get on stage, I have to go through every split second of it. Every breath that I take is already, I've already gone through it. Just like preparing for a martial art, you know, a, a taekwondo or something. You can, you have to imagine the scenario, you have to imagine the, your opponent, which in me, it's the nature, the, 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 the air, the, the, the stage. This is my, I have, to in, I have to be invincible on stage. I cannot allow for anything mm. to be in my way. And I have to envision it. And that's a technique. And you envision it. It's something, it's a procedure, it's a process. It's, uh, it's a wavelength. It's something that I've acquired and developed over 40, 45 years of, of performances. And it, it takes a lot of contemplation. And once you're on stage, everything that you planned is gone. Nothing counts. But you have already set in your mind every step that you're making. And you can still play around and you can zigzag your way through. And the wind can get intense, more intense and the light and the sun will only rise 10 minutes after you plan because there's a nebulous kind of a cloudy uh, environment and, the, and, and, it's up, and you're above the Dead Sea and the sun has to rise above those clouds and, and evaporate them with the heat. And all these things that come together and your emotion. And you have to be real and play every, every note like you're falling on your sword. It's that kind of an intensity, that kind of a commitment. Now, if that won't drive you into a state of not fear, but anxiety, because you want to succeed. Mm -hmm. If you're not anxious, I don't know if the audience is going to enjoy it as much. You are driving the audience into a place, into a frenzy. You're the one who's driving their minds without any magic. There's no magic to it. It's pure communication. You know, pure communication. You have to be able to do it. So I'm lucky that I've, I've trained myself that way, and I love doing it, and I love devoting myself to it. And well, you, I miss it a lot now. You describe the artistic process as well as I've ever heard it described. That was wonderful yeah. of you. <laughs> Thank you. And so use Masada again, your concert Masada, as, as the test case. It's over. What are you feeling at the end of that incredible concert? Well, it's very, first of all, incredible elation and euphoric state of mind. You know, you've just let go of probably about, you know, two or three liters of, of liquid from your body. So you're dehydrated. And you, I normally invite my close friends, it's about 40 people, 
that's all we can fit into the gas station up in Arad, which is a 45-minute drive because we have to drive up from Asada all the way up to Arad. And there's the gas station, and they prepare for us a beautiful breakfast. And the first thing we do is we pop open a bottle of whiskey, pour a glass to everybody, have whiskey and coffee, fried eggs, and salads, and say lechaim shechayanu, and we'll see you in the next show. You oh, know, that is, that's what we do. That is wonderful. <laughs> I'm only it's jealous true. I wasn't able to be there. I know, but there'll be more. There'll okay, be more. fair to, enough. Yeah, yeah. I want to show one moment, since we've talked about it, of the Masada concert. Here yeah. is David Broza on Masada. ילדים יחיו בלי פחד, בלי גבולות, בלי מקלטים. על קברים נפרח העשר לשלום. is an extraordinary extraordinary event you created a musical event david mm -hmm. and again call a to you you know on the 
you have played for me yes spanish music it's mm-hmm. it's interesting for me to hear you say as you prepared for this album it was almost like you had to hone a craft but am i not correct that in some way you've been playing instrumental flamenco guitar music your entire life not my entire life but uh, a good part of my life i've i've certainly toyed with it played with it int- uh, included it in my albums of course many times i've got rumbas and i've uh, i have a, a piece that i wrote for my first masada show actually it's called then it was called ruti and masada um and then uh, and then second time i recorded it uh, i recorded it it was called florin masada because i included it in the spanish album of mine um and that is pure flamenco which i don't even know i'm not a flamenco expert i understand i'm a flamenco aficionado i listen to a lot of flamenco but i don't study it in the sense that i can profess to be oh i understand i know that i can feel it um so yeah i've always had a lot of as as i say i've played things but i've always sung around them there's maybe there's one piece that's called stolen kiss which is also an album title of mine but it's an instrumental piece which i redid in this album um you know there's four four i think altogether in all the albums i've released there's four instrumentals right. that i uh, that i've included this so that's spread out amongst uh, 400 songs while i have you talk to me about one thing outside the album you know i mentioned that you have been an activist you've long been associated with efforts to build bridges mm-hmm. between israelis and palestinians and when you came out with your album East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, and Yuran Lechaim, you described how you hoped a collaboration of Israelis and Palestinians recording in East Jerusalem would help open greater understanding between our two peoples. Where do you feel things stand now between Israelis and Palestinians? Well, there, there, are, there are certainly there are two two parallel worlds. One is the political world and one is the, the um, social world or rather the, the community world. The two communities, the Israeli and the Palestinian communities, the Israeli people and the Palestinian people. Now, in the grassroots world, the things are, there's constant improvement, constant challenges that have been taken and worked out constant there's more people involved more groups involved more organizational work being done between israelis and palestinians on a daily basis there's a big more trust being laid down as a foundation and i believe that that grassroots feeling is what's going to spring up and force the politicians on both sides to come to terms with each other and to try to to point put down literally in stone carve it in stone the, the you know the solution on how we can live side by side and you know enjoy uh, uh, improving and and building and creating foundations for these joint societies to live side by side and to to contribute to one another the palestinian the Palestinian country, if and when, not if, when it gets established, will benefit so much from what Israel can give it, 
the Israelis will benefit so much from what from what the Palestinians, a, a busy Palestinian society that's flourishing economically and education is getting more um, uh, a, 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 a bigger a bigger attention. All this will contribute to a, a region that will be unparalleled in the Middle East for sure and in many other parts of the world. But we have to have a lot of patience, you know. Immigrants as a, as a rule and young nations, which does not is not something you can say, oh yeah, these all these young nations. Israel is a young nation, and it's perhaps the only one that we that we know of in the current world that we live in. I mean, you know that India is young because India India's infrastructure was founded in 1948. Uh, the Chinese the the, the Maoist revolution was 1948. There were so many things that changed, but Israel did not exist before, and this, so that this test of endurance, which has proven itself and continues to prove itself, is just at a point where the, the interrelationships with, between Israeli Jewish population, Israeli Muslim and Christian population, is just now beginning to go into the next phase, where the Arab population takes a much more active part in Israeli society, in the workforce, and benefits from it. And you think that the Arab countries around in the area don't see it, don't see how the uh, the young um, Arab population within Israel, with all the limitations and with all the horrible hurdles that are being thrown at that minority. But in spite of all that, you think the Arab countries around, the young people that don't watch how the Israeli Arabs are, you know, managing to get a much more, um, a more free to get a, get a full education, women, and men, etc., etc. I mean, there's so many benefits along with the hurdles that have to be taken, the un- injustices that are being p- practiced in Israeli politics and day-to-day life towards the minorities. But all these things don't go unspoken. You know, these these are not things that go uh, swept under the carpet as if, you know, I'm, I'm coming to think of the atrocities that the Native American has suffered over hundreds of years, and that has been swept under the rug. But, you know, once in a while, like now in Oklahoma, it suddenly hits you in the face. You realize, you know, it ain't gone nowhere. It's still here. Problems have to be solved. In Israel, I think it's a very vibrant and living uh, society that works on every angle, fights on every, argues, bickers on every every aspect. But, But slowly but surely... They're chipping away and creating, I think, a, an improved version of what Israeli and Palestinian relations, Israeli and Arab minority relations should be. And this is where my, this is where my positive attitude comes from. Yes, by I the way, you are expressing what seems to me a very optimistic view, which should hearten all of us. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, optimistic. Why... <laughs> Listen, if you're going to be a pessimist, you're not going to make it out. You're not going to make it out your door. No, there have been times when you and I have spoken and your realistic assessment did not express itself the way you have today. Well, I have, I have many, many years of experience now and I have I've come through quite a lot of stories and, and, and hurdles and I see the partners with whom I have had these experiences with on the Palestinian side on the Arab-Israeli side um, 
and we've all matured and we all come to all kinds of conclusions. Many of, many of my partners are at times at despair, but they don't give up. So there is despair, but if you don't give up, then you're positive, then you're an optimist. If you're in despair and you have no more strength to pull through, that's the end of the game. That cannot happen. That cannot happen. Life, life does not give you that luxury of giving up. Sorry. You know, David. I don't want to disappoint you. No, you didn't. There is a positive end. Absolutely. A end. <laughs> um, David, you are one of my favorite people in the world. Oh, it, you have been you. very kind to me in so, so many circumstances. You. You're always ready to come on JBS and L'Chaim. And of course. You, and I am so grateful. And it is wonderful to be able to celebrate in Casa Limon with you. Yes. And I hope, you know, Kol Tuv Hatzlacha, not only with the album, but with every, anything you want to do now, in uh -huh. your neck, you know, in, in the next stage of your extraordinary career. And I will continue to chase you Thank and you. make sure that any time your voice is needed on JBS, you'll be there. And if you ever have anything you do or want to say, you have an open microphone here at any time. Thank you. And Thank you, uh, again, I am thrilled within Casalimon. I hope all of anybody who loves guitar music is going to be astounded by the beauty of Encasa Limon. So I thank you on every level, David, for spending time with us again on L'Chaim. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate being invited. I appreciate the attention that you give to my work. And of course, how you welcome me. I'm, I'm humbled. And uh, yeah, anybody who's curious, they can, they can hear it on all the platforms, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, iTunes, everything. And, um, and also, I think we'll be also make, uh, streaming some shows in the near, next few months, especially I'm trying to get onto the 25th anniversary of my Not Exactly Christmas show, the night before Christmas this year, maybe on December 23rd. So hopefully we can meet again, and hopefully I can continue entertaining and uh, fulfilling, you know, my music at least uh, to the audiences. Absolutely. The incomparable David Broza, whose album and Casa Limon is one of the most beautiful things David has ever created. If you love music, you'll love and Casa Limon. As always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts you may have to any of the ideas expressed on this edition of L'Chaim, please email me at rabbigolub at jbstv.org or write me at post office box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. And remember, you can now listen to L'Chaim anytime on the L'Chaim podcast. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'chaim, my friends, to life. L'chaim is a presentation of Jewish education in media.
We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS Pledge Line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.